This week is a little different on Toasting the Classics. We're teaming up with Larry Andrews from the Square Peg Podcast to do a special episode on Edgar Allan Poe. It took a long time to set this one up, so get yourself some left-hand milk stout and enjoy our foray into the dark side of the 19th century. It's time for episode 52 of Toasting the Classics, Edgar Allan Poe. So, my name is Andrew Lawrence, and I'm the host of the Square Peg Podcast, and with me here is... Dave MacArthur. And you are the host of? Host of Toasting the Classics Podcast. Completely different format, completely different show. So. Now, of course, my listeners know what the Square Peg Podcast is all about, and this is what we're calling a crossover episode. Yeah. We've been talking about doing this for a while, and we just barely squeezing it in by the hair of our yeah. eggs. Um, I like to think of myself as the Harlem Globetrotter showing up on Scooby-Doo today. A little crossover. <laughs> I, to, like, uh, I like Don that. Knotts maybe won't be here today. Yeah, so Dave and his family are moving to New York City next week in, in like eight days from now. So we've been talking about this since last summer, and we, we finally made it happen. Um, of course, Dave, I'm familiar with your podcast. I've listened to a couple episodes. For the okay. Square Peg podcast listeners, why don't you tell us about Toasting the Classics? So Toasting the Classics is a podcast where we take something, anything that people call a classic, we talk about it, we drink something that's inspired by the purported classic, and then we decide whether it deserves to be included as a classic in the future. So pretty simple format. We just chat. We talk about the book or the movie or the whatever, and we have a drink. So are we crossing over our formats today? Are we sort of blending today? Well, it's honestly, this is going to be, so this is the way I've looked at the crossover format. We're drinking during the show, which I don't do. I have yet uh, to do. Um, right. Was going to do that with a friend of mine who, who who kind of backed out of being on the show. He had some reservations about talking about the stuff that, that he initially wanted to talk about. But he said, hey, can we do a Joe Rogan-like podcast? I said, well, oh. what do you mean? Be douchey and like spread half-truths <laughs> and conspiracy theories? No, no, no. I'm just kidding. Yeah. He said, no, I want to drink. And so I had it all set okay. up. And Of course, sense. he backed out. No. Does Joe Rogan drink on his podcast? All the time. Oh, I didn't know They that. blaze. They smoke. Oh, okay. He probably drops shrooms. I never like, listened, so I don't know, but- yeah, so so the crossover part is we're doing this together. Um, we're using your kind of format or theme. Right. We're, we're reading a book. We're reading some short stories by um, one of my favorite American authors, Edgar Allan Poe. We'll read some of his short stories. We'll talk about some of his short stories and some of his poems, and then we'll talk about him. Um, and, so we're doing and, him sort of as a whole. We're not really doing any particular work, although we covered a couple of spe- well, specific ones. We didn't read anything really long. No, uh, no. I, it's funny. We, you know, I don't know. We've talked about this. I don't know if we talked about this with, you know, your wife, of course. Uh, oh, it, otherwise, it, I guess we should mention Dave's wife, Karina Arbatova MacArthur, was my season three season finale, if you guys remember. Uh, I, yeah, I listened to that. I've listened to all your episodes, actually. So, uh, I know Damn, now I feel like bad because I've, mine, so I've heard fine, like two yeah. of yours and yeah. you've listened to all of mine. <laughs> but no, so the, the way we roped this into it being a square peg is Edgar Allan Poe is quite the oddball. That's certainly um, true. That's certain. I thought you were going to try to figure out how I'm a square peg because I consider myself sort of a round peg. I'm I'm pretty much exactly what you see. You're is what basically you get. you're you're a blue eyed American That's guy right. with with his, your Oriole zip up jacket. That's right. Um, your general impression of where does Poe rank with you among your favorite American authors? Among my favorite authors, um, I have a lot of respect for Poe. I haven't read him in a long time. We did some reading of Poe uh, in high school and maybe even younger years some of the stories, and I have a very vivid memory of my parents used to get me these children's illustrated classics books when I was a kid, and I mean, I was like eight years old, and they got me this Poe anthology with, with illustrated classics, and I read it, and it scared the pants out. It was like, it really was like, the Telltale Heart was in there, 
for little kids. Yeah, we're going to tell, tell her. How is anything of Poe for little kids? Uh, it, it isn't. There was the fall of the House of Usher. There was um, there was the Telltale Heart. All of those were like hard for me to get through. They upset me so much when I was reading them when I was seven or eight years old or whatever it was. But anyway, so those left an impression, that's for sure. I, you know what's funny is I remember reading The Gold Bug. I remember Gold Bug closed out the book I had, and I was so happy because it was so much more enjoyable and fun well, than the other Well, you know, the other thing is the the so the the – Poe documentary that I watched a little bit of today that I actually watched last summer as well when we first started talking mm-hmm. about this episode, something that I didn't know, apparently a third of his works are, are comedic. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's actually closer to half. I think it's about half and half are considered comedic. Half is half or half are a comic tone and half are the horror tone. I think what we read almost entirely horror tone. Yeah, and I don't Gold you know, Bug is more comedic, I think. It's a little more fun. I don't even honestly don't even remember. I remember you know, having ADD, it was really difficult for me to to uh, to do a lot of the this type of reading mm-hmm. when I was growing up. And where one thing I was going to mention, talking about Karina, you know, she's Ukrainian, close enough uh, geographically and ethnically to, to to Russian. You and I have the same alma mater, George Mason University. I majored in history. We didn't officially have to have a concentration of study, but I did take several semesters in modern and revolutionary Russia. And oh, okay. I find an interesting, what's the word I'm looking for? I really do love Russian literature. Okay. But it's long as shit. The books are all like 900 pages and I have uh, ADD. I, they tend to be. They tend to be. So it makes yeah. it really difficult for me to read. Now, one of the reasons yeah. actually that I was attracted to doing Poe for this episode is that reason because they're short stories. And I find his short That's stories- a philosophy of his that, that a book should, that a work should be able to be read in one sitting. No unnecessary words. Every word moves the story forward. Everything he writes should be read in one sitting. And I can't think of any examples. Goldbug was a little longer, but that was pretty breezy read. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably we're talking about thirty pages, which actually oh, okay. isn't necessarily right. that long. I, you know, along no, the lines of long, no. along the lines of Russian literature, I got a book of uh, Chekhov short stories. Yeah. Which I hate because you know what? I like things to be <laughs> wrapped in a neat little ball. Like I like to I like it to follow that typical whatever I, I from I can't remember from English class but it has this right. typical flow of like you know you introduce your characters you you set up your dilemma or your what's the what's the um it's not the dilemma the conflict, the conflict yeah. and then it reaches it reaches its crescendo and then have like uh-huh. you have your little afterward part and Chekhov doesn't close up anything neatly no you're meant to interpret everything that he writes yeah it's definitely um I did a Gogol uh collection of short stories recently same thing none of it was very clear what, exactly what was happening although it had a tone similar to Poe actually there were some scary, kind of creepy, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like kind of macabre, like broody, superstitious type stories. Similar similar tone, actually. Well, I don't, um, you know, that's the other thing that I think is kind of interesting. If there, if one thing that I've never been good at, well, there were a lot of things I wasn't good at in school. I mean, the, the attention deficit disorder. You know, we've I think we've talked about this. Are we drinking as we go, by the way, or should we introduce the drinking and then talk about it? Or are we just? Are you? Have you as you can have you see, started? I've made a little bit of progress. Okay, all right, but then I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll go ahead and blow the froth off mine as well. Well, now that we mention it, um, so we're drinking uh, Left Hand's Milk Stout Nitro, and if you want to know how, where's that, Left Hand? Left Hand is from. It's a Colorado brewery. Okay, they have a couple of really good. Uh, I think the first thing I had Long of theirs months. was their- so not, not far from Boulder. Okay. Um, the, the first I had of theirs was Left Hand's uh, Blackjack Porter, which okay. is really good. This Milk Stout Nitro is a couple years old. Um, I really like it. They they do some gimmicky beers. There's a there's like a peanut butter stout uh, that I've had that they tend to- I think my, my personal opinion, I like gimmicky beers with vanilla 
and coffee and coconut and the, the different flavors. I'd try a peanut butter stout. That sounds good. But they a lot of places overdo it. I like yeah. subtle. On the one hand, I like powerful flavors, but when it comes to beers like that, I like something subtle. So we had talked about what right. to drink for Poe. Yeah. And I think we agreed that it had to be something dark. Oh, for reasons of tone or because people in that time would have had Probably beer. both. Uh, both, yeah, okay. I right, think I like both. That. And what I really- I mean, me- nobody drank an IPA in a Baltimore pub in 1840, right? Did IPAs- IPA shouldn't even, exist as far well, as I'm IPAs, concerned at all. Well, it's, it's what the British drank in, in India, right? That's where it gets its name from. India Pale Ale? Yeah, so it may that have been around sense. in the 1800s. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that we, they weren't drinking lagers, certainly not light beer. No. Um, I had a beer a couple years ago, I want to say actually 10 years ago, at a place called the Townhouse in Baltimore. Okay. It was it was um, Flying Dog Brewery. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard of it. Flying? No, not off the top. It's of my a Chesapeake, Mid Atlantic, okay. you know, Maryland. Um, it used to be called. I've seen it called two. There's Chesapeake Oyster Stout, and then there's the the uh, the Pearl Necklace Oyster Stout, and it's a it's a, I like don't a know six, what's funny about that particular not type at all. Of jewelry, and there's no nothing, and we're not making any double entendres no, or anything. No here. Single entendre. Um, but no, it's a really. It basically the way I described it. I had it on tap. It was basically Guinness with flavor. Ah, okay. Um, which is why I was just telling you we have these beautiful Guinness pint glasses. But so you're not a fan of Guinness. You know, if anybody me. who's ever geeked out on beer, I think understands all the different things that beers are graded on. There's uh-huh. like there's lacing, there's mouthfeel, there's how easy it goes down, um, the flavors, blah blah blah. Guinness has everything but flavor. Like it's okay. creamy, it's nice, it's always yeah. poured on on tap, it's on nitro, has a beautiful head, beautiful lacing. It just has no goddamn flavor. We were talking about Sierra Nevada, uh, I, I think IPA, the, the Pale Ale, uh, on an earlier show that I did, and I was talking about how I may not drink that anymore, but it was kind of like a gateway beer for like better beers for me. Okay. Because when you're young, you know, you go to parties and it's all Bud Light, Miller Light, whatever. Right. And I remember had somebody had a keg of Sierra Nevada. Expensive. And I, was, and I and I yeah, well it was it was like a grown up party. It was people in their twenties somewhere in the city. Twenties, right? so grown ups in their twenties. Yeah, exactly. Course. Yeah. So I had I had it and I was like, Oh wow, this is there's a whole new world of beers out there. And for me, Guinness was another early okay. not just crappy light beer that I had. So I don't know if I really drink Guinness very often anymore, but certainly have fond memories of it. I try every couple of years just to think maybe it's uh-huh. gonna be different. Okay. And it's never. This I doesn't they taste- say this doesn't taste terribly different from a Guinness to me. I don't know how you're saying it's, this is well, more Well, it's a, it's a milk stout. It's a stout. It's ni- it's poured on nitro. I mean, it's 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 uh, carbonated with nitro. Mm-hmm. Um, it, to me, it's a lot like Guinness, but it has flavor. Okay. When you talk about your gateway beer, uh, for me, it was Bass Bass ah, Ale. Yeah. I remember a lot. Of which I taste. Which I drink. If I drink now, it tastes like shit. I haven't had that in years. I don't. But even to remember. me, that was the. I'm 21 or right. I'm 20, and I'm right. I'm not drinking Bud Light, so I'm better that you know I'm more cultured or whatever it is. Well, let's be honest. When you're not 21 yet, you drink what you can get your hands on. Of course, because it's difficult to get a hold of beer in this country. So maybe we would drink better beer in America if, in our beer drinking years, we were allowed to drink beer legally. Hey, I'm just putting that out there. Just putting that out there. But no, uh, Milk Stout Nitro from Left Hand Brewing. If you guys can get it, my friends on the East Coast, it's a nice. I'm looking at the bottle now. It's a it's a 6.0 percent ABV, but um. So I think we probably agreed. My my first introduction to Poe really was in ninth grade. Yours was a little bit younger. I was, little, I was very with an illustrated yeah. book. Illustrated book, yeah. Was, uh, Did it give you nightmares? I don't know if it gave me nightmares. I've never really had that reaction. You know, the only thing that's ever given me nightmares in my entire life was the movie Goonies when they take the kid's hand and they're going to put it into a blender to scare him. 
for some reason, that get, that's the only time I've ever had a nightmare from a movie or a book or anything. It's funny you mention that. We were just in Albuquerque this weekend. We went to Flick's Brew House, took uh-huh. the kids to see Goonies. Really? And as I expected, awesome. I was I was very pleased that it was playing. Awesome. Um, as I expected, the eight-year-old was a little freaked out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and as much as I love that movie, the older I get, the more it bugs me. And, and I've joked, you know, whenever somebody, you know, posts to social media about, you know, the movie, I always kind of have to add the line. Do you have any idea what it was like being a fat, ugly, 11-year-old Jewish kid named Lawrence when that movie came out? <laughs> That's funny. I was chunk. Yeah. I, I mean, was I'm chunk. sure you were neither fat nor ugly. I'm sure you were much fitter than you thought and a very handsome young man. Uh, I don't want to comment on any negative uh, perceptions you had of yourself as a child. but uh, It's okay, Dave. My friends like my friends asked me to do the, uh, the truffle, truffle shuffle, shuffle. Yeah, more than, you know. Did. People more, are evil. More than anybody. And it's funny, like the older I get, that sticks out of my head, you know, more than anything. Yeah. I, I love the movie. I, can't, I probably can't watch it enough. Yeah, it was good. I liked it a lot when I was a kid. We actually talked about it as an example of something that I would toast because I like it, but wouldn't be a classic, I don't think. I don't know if it's a great film of all time. Uh, we I talked think, about that. We, we didn't do a sh- an episode on it, but we discussed it as an example of something. If we were doing non-John Hughes 1980s pop culture like kids movies right. or tween teen, yeah. I think Goonies would be a classic. Now, you don't like any of the sci-fi stuff like Indiana Jones and Star Wars and things like I'm that. Not in sure. I, I have yeah, not okay. seen a, a Star Wars. The last Star Wars I saw was Empire Strikes Back, 1982. Well, that was the best one, so you you were in good company there. Yeah, well, what, what would we drink if we were talking about Goonies? Oh, Pacific Northwest. It would have to be like Something some Deschutes. Something like Astoria, Oregon? I don't, there's probably great beer up there, I would guess. Well, Deschutes makes that Black Butte Porter okay. and the Obsidian okay, that's Stout. where Deschutes is from, yeah, sure. Yeah, so not too different from what we're doing here. Yeah. Now, as you've gotten older, do you feel like you like Poe or more interested in his works or see them differently than so, you did when you were younger? I'm actually really glad that we're doing this show right now because I just did an episode on my podcast about H.P. Lovecraft, and Poe is one of his huge influences. And I've read a ton of Stephen King, and of course Poe's a huge influence on Stephen King as well. So I've been thinking about going back to the originals and reading the old the old. Uh, Books that were that the old works that were an inspiration on on those authors, um, and this is just really highlighted by actually reading it. I mean, I'm it's, glad you mentioned it's Stephen a good King. Quality, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Stephen King because I, I had that thought today. Is like I wonder if Poe was an influence. Absolutely, hundred percent. The Black Cat. That story is not just one of Stephen King's stories, but especially I was thinking of Pet Cemetery with the cat that comes back from the dead, and I was like, that's right out of this Poe story. Also. Both Poe and Stephen King seem to share, at least on some Freudian level, a fantasy about wife murder that comes up in a lot of their works. Like No Poe. comment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but Stephen King has a bunch of stories and books that involve uh, that, and so does Poe, which is an interesting, I don't know where, you, I don't know if that's a Freudian kind of a thing or, or what that is, but um, there's a theme there. I don't, um, I, I've actually come to the conclusion, so so reviewing this book of short stories I have, The Best of Poe, uh, it says The Telltale Heart, The Raven, The Cask of Amontillado, and 30 others, Okay, which I bought a couple years ago, and in all honesty, has spent more time, it's been sitting on my desk at work. Uh-huh. I like to take a break, you know, if I have gaps in my day sometimes, I like to do very un, undetective things, you know, yeah. and just kind of change gears with my brain, and the thing's actually- Is be, mur- Murders in the Room Org, is that in there? I think so. That's the original detective story. A lot of people exactly. That I just we didn't we didn't actually read that for this, but no. So I have I've, this book is several years old. I mean, I don't know. I bought it five six years ago. And like I said, it's probably spent more time in my what I call my office library than mm-hmm. than my home library. But um, in in reviewing and preparing for this episode, I've probably read 
more Poe in a shorter amount of time than I ever have. Oh, absolutely. Me too. Except that one trip, road right. trip with my parents when I was reading this terrifying book. Yeah. But I think I've come to the seat. conclusion I actually don't like him that much. Oh, okay. I, I like him, but he's his his horrors are all very predictable. Okay. Like they have this similar theme. Somebody dies, somebody gets sick, somebody dies, well, and they think you think they're dead, but they're not dead. Usually what we do on, on my podcast is we talk about the books, and at the end we sort of have like a little mini, not really debate, but a little conversation about whether we're toasting the classic. Okay. So that's definitely, I mean, what you're talking about there. I have some things to say about that that we, we could get into now, or we could do it like sort of in the order that I usually do it. But I, I would say a lot of the reason it seems so predictable is because this is Edgar Allan Poe. This is the guy that created this genre for, for better or for worse. You he know was the I mean? first goth. Uh, there's There's... Other people, especially other Europeans and other languages, that when I was sort of looking through some of the background, I was like, oh, he's getting this from this guy and this from this guy. He's not entirely... One of his stories... I mean, like, the raven is something from Dickens. Like, the, the raven in the poem is, like, a copy of, like, a raven that talks in a Dickens story. And there's a couple of other people, French and Spanish authors, that he's taking certain things from. So he's, he's, he's in a continuity with other works in other words but but this definitely for english speakers i think sort of defines the horror genre okay or, or, I, or begins it you know and i think it's interesting that you t i didn't know that about the raven um and i i usually um dickens was the canterbury tales right no no that was that was, that was yeah. chaucer okay yeah dickens is um, christmas carol and some stuff like that which is also the raven seems kind of dark for dickens though well the raven was i think more of a comic figure in barnaby rudge it was like there just was a speaking raven, and it said some of the same phrases that come up in the uh, in the Poe in the Poe in the Poe the Poe poem is an annoying phrase to have to say, but there it is, Poe poem. So you know what I was going to say before. One of the things that has always been really difficult for me, um, and it's still difficult for me to this day, is when be in English class at school and the professor or the teacher would be talking about the work. I'm like, what was so and so really saying here? And I'm like, right. I have no idea. I'm just reading the words. Like. Yeah. And I still don't have a knack. I don't know what that is. I don't know what you call that, like academically or, or, or intellectually. Like, what do you call that? Having a being able to interpret. It's just how concrete of a thinker you are. Probably it's just a sense of. Well, first of all, you get used to doing it. So I've been doing this this show for it's a, a year now. We've got fifty something episodes that we've done. And you crank one out every, every single week, week. We do an episode, and you just get kind of into the habit of trying to think a little bit more about what the person's saying. Why did they bring? You know, somebody goes in in a movie. They pick up a book and they look at it for a second. You're like, well, why do they? Why do they look at that book? Let's ask some questions about that. You know, why? Why did this particular event happen in the movie? Why did they choose that symbol? You just get used to thinking of it that way. It's it, it stops you from being so concrete and just following the sto the story, the narrative of what you're watching, and you start thinking about why the artists did the things that they did as they were as they were creating it. Usually, usually there's a reason. Like if you spend a year of your life creating a movie. You don't just throw things in right. randomly. Like okay. you thought about every single detail. Did so. you geek out on like American Lit when you were in school? Not really. No, I, I I enjoyed it to some extent, but it's never it was never a huge part of my. Uh, I don't know. I could, by some by some people's standards, yeah. I guess I'd say I probably did a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I um. You know. So a big Hemingway phase and things like that. So I, I now see. I prefer Steinbeck to Hemingway. Um, okay. I'm a Twain and Steinbeck when it comes to like American literature. I had a bad experience reading The Red Pony when I was in uh, sixth grade. Okay. The same thing. It just upset me. There's like a dying animal that goes on for a long time and it just stuck in my head as being unpleasant. And 
Well, I can see that. I uh, they were. Just, I was just watching an episode of The Sopranos. We were talking with Billy Budd. That's that's not Steinbeck, is it? Melville. That's Melville. Okay, a little bit off track there. But so this era of of American literature, I'm not big on. This was more like this was Poe and like Washington Irving and like Walt Whitman and mm-hmm. that's yeah, that's not an era. That's not an era that I'm too into. I definitely prefer. Now, granted, I, I I tell you that that you're 20th Poe, century guy, pretty much like. More 20th century, but Twain's not. I mean, Twain is 19th century. Oh, okay. Well, but Twain, I mean, yeah. the, and the funny thing is, is if you read, I talk about how predictable Poe is, if you read Steinbeck, like, have you read mm-hmm. Cannery Row? No. You and I actually talked about maybe doing that for show, which I absolutely would do. We uh, can do that too. It well, it's a book really about a bunch of drunks in, in, it's in, in, Monterey. in Monterey, California. Yeah, that sounds yeah. interesting. I would definitely ha- want to Have read you that. read Tortilla Flat? No. So they're both the same book. It's basically okay. a bunch of loser, like, like, drunks who were basically their whole life is finding a new way like finding a way to get liquor the next day what a great thing to read while drinking i think we should do it well it's going to be kind of difficult (laughs) but i if you don't mind i want to start with the fall of the house of usher okay and there's a a specific type of writing that i that certainly is not something that i i wouldn't say that i'm not capable of i'm not you know i i can write really well having majored in history and having a a father who was the best editor you could ever you know imagine right Uh, somebody who corrected our grammar at the at the dinner table every night uh, I guess you. I don't know what would you call the writing I do at work. Would it be technical writing or oh, legal um, writing? Um, yeah, probably more like legal writing. Yeah, which is um, everything when I do creative writing, everything I ever learned in legal writing, I have to try to avoid doing because it's not. It's the exact opposite. And, and I hate it when sometimes at writing group I'll put together a chapter and people will say, "Oh, where, are you a lawyer?" And I'm like, "Okay, I wrote that wrong. I need to. Go, I need to go back to the drawing board because that's not what I'm going for." But yes, you are a lawyer. But yes, I am. That's true. So I, I looked, I, I'm going to start, I mean, right at the beginning, I highlighted this. He says, in, in the fall of the House of Usher, I looked upon the scene before me, upon the, men ho- the mere house, and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees with an utter depression of soul, which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to after to the after dream of the reveler upon opium. Yeah, right. The bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping of all of the veil. I thought that was such a strange thing for him to say. I never heard anything about Poe and opium. But then when you hear about how he died. It makes sense. I was reading that and I was like, wait a minute, opium? Nobody talked about that with how he disappeared for three days and ended up dead and drugged on the streets of Baltimore. Well, the guys, he was which, the guy's doing opium. I didn't know that. It sounds very him, but we also know that it he does. was a drunk. But the, what we I know get from he was that- a drunk. Drinking was an issue. Drinking, like, all, I think, destroyed his last possible marriage that he was going to. Oh no, no, he was actually on his way to New York to announce that he was going to marry this woman when he when he disappeared. So, yeah, um, it, it it almost derailed his marriage. I guess the drinking. Did you ever see that book, um, the legend of, uh, Legend of Ichabod Crane? Uh, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, Legend um, of Sleepy Hollow. Actually, my son was really into it. It was called they were, Sleepy Hollow. It was yeah, actually they read it with Johnny Depp, and, I, and he wanted to. No, I didn't actually see the Johnny Depp movie, but we got. My son was into reading the book, and so we watched the old Disney cartoon. Okay, if you remember that, I don't. With the croaking frogs and everything. No, but it, that it, scared me when I was little too. It gives me a very similar, like basically the intro or, or any part of any Poe short story. What conjures up in my mind is this really this black and white. Mm-hmm. kind of like low clouds riding through a forest and finding some maybe a castle I, I saw so I saw that movie Sleepy Hollow with Johnny Depp God I would say it was on a date with this okay. girl named Blair 
in like January of 2000. She of the Witch Project? She was not of the Witch Project. Okay. Right. Um, that was right around that time, though. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, it would have been right <laughs> around that same time. Um, but that's what kind of conjures up this black and white, like creepy, sleepy hollow, like headless horseman. And that's pretty much how he describes everything. Uh huh. Yeah. Another uh, well, thing. Washington Irving is pr- pretty much before Poe. He must have been, must have been contemporary. Of an insp- I think he's, I think he's a little bit, be- well, maybe contemporary. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Within actually. a couple, I mean, early, early 19th century. Yeah. It, first is, half. it is early 19th century, but I'm trying to think whether. Irving would have been sort of the first to do these kinds of stories and then Poe, but I, I don't know. Either way, the thing that I find very interesting is for a guy who did not come from money, he seems to always, of course, everything is told from first person. You mean Poe? Yeah. Um, I mean, when we say he didn't come from money, he grew up pretty comfortably, it sounded like. He was he was adopted by a family that had some means in, in Baltimore, uh, sorry, in Richmond, and he had a pretty good education, it sounded like. Yeah, they, I mean, he, he went to University of Virginia before he... Like yeah, exactly. gambling and drunk. And- University of Virginia sounded like it was awesome in the mid 1800s. I was I was listening to this. I don't know if we saw the same I've, documentary, but the one I was talking to, they were talking about. They had to call in the police every day to break up fights, and people were attacking their professors. Well, I partied like there in the early to mid 90s. Yeah, I always I had a good to, time. So did I. So, did um, I. but so maybe not old money. I don't know. It, it just seems like so when he talks about no going, old money, I don't think is there. Yeah, no, I don't think. That's but, right. but all of his stories. Well, okay, let's take the fall of the House of Usher. He goes to visit his friend. Uh huh. Um, and the friend and his sister, like the two last of their long line of whoever's uh, living in this house, and they have the time to just live in this big house right? and hang out for a couple weeks. Like, he stays there for a couple weeks. Yeah. And they just, yeah. they sit and they talk and they drink and they read to each other. I think his friend reads to him or something. Like, I just think it's it's interesting that he he always seems to have that, there's never, like, nobody, he doesn't talk about having a job or... I think that's what literary people were like back then. I think you always hear about these people, they have this immense amount of leisure time, you know? I, I think it's, when I read a lot of things that, that are from before about 1950, it always seems to me like, how does anybody ever write anything today? Because, like, we just did an episode on Dr. Seuss, and Dr. Seuss came up with his first book while seasick on a ship for, like, two weeks. And I'm like, when do you ever have two weeks of downtime in the 21st century? Are you ever just... You got nothing to do, maybe just write a story. It's I guess just, if you had money to travel in a ship, you had that you had that time because you, yeah. it took that long. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think it was just more common for people to just have lots of downtime. I, I feel like we're just assaulted by having something to do at all moments of our day today. What do you think that? What do you think the 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 disease or ailment was that that his friend had? Remember he said he, he like it, the weird thing oh, is um, all of his senses got sharpened too, right? I think it's supposed to be like a psychic ailment of some kind. And I don't know whether he's got any modern conception of psychiatry to be giving him any particular. You're talking about the uh, Roderick Usher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it seems to be just sort of a decadence. It's like their family has decayed and the house has decayed and the house has some kind of spirit that's infecting these two people and making them slip into. I mean, the, the, the see, woman, there you go. You're reading so much more into this than I, I would mean, ever. I think you have to because there's not that much going on in the story. Otherwise, this one, especially I was reading, I was like, not much happened in this story. There was a lot of buildup. And then there was there's kind of a climax, I guess, when the sister comes back from the dead is pretty uh, spoiler alert for something. That's I was going to say, yeah, old. you kind of jumping, you're jumping ahead here, Dave. Yeah. But did, do you think that she had the same ailment he did? I think so, because I think it's meant to be sort of a, a sickness of the spirit, in other words. That's, okay. That's manifesting in their actually die i mean why does he die she comes into the room and she's, i thought she falls upon him and she's she he's like a fright he drops dead and i thought he may like is scared that she well because she died she comes back to life and she falls on him and maybe he 
he see basically seeing a ghost and scares him to death. Yeah, I guess so. Well, I think I think in reality that's not a real thing though. Is what people don't dive. Maybe they dive because, because everything Poe wrote was so real, right? But I mean, <laughs> their idea of psychiatry and psychic issues would have been completely different than the way we look at it. Uh, okay, well, this had. the other thing is this house is so big that they have all these chambers and right. antechambers, yeah. and so he was afraid. He hit her for a couple of weeks because he was afraid these doctors were going to. He was, an afraid, autopsy he was on her, afraid right? that resurrectionists were going to get a hold of her body, which is people that like dig up graves and then sell the body to medical students, which is either legal or not legal, depending on where you live, but was a common practice like going back to the Middle Ages. Okay, see, I couldn't so, figure out why there were doctors, these wicked, you know, a wink, yeah, wink, these doctors walking by him as he's walking in the house. and Right. That, okay, that makes Everybody's sense. Everybody's always trying to get a hold of a body because it was really hard to get a hold of bodies for dissection for medical school. And hiding her in some room for two weeks was going to... I don't know. Put her in deep freeze and chill her for a little while. Maybe she'll get just gross enough she wouldn't be worth dissecting and then... Well, know, then well this is the other and thing, and we'll get to this when we talk about the telltale heart. Um, maybe they were just so used to... Obviously, this is early to mid-19th century. They didn't have quite... The 21st century uh, sanitary and bathing, they must have stunk a lot anyway. He was just going to keep a dead body. Look, I've... So if you want to hear my overwrought theory of the week, which I like to do this at least once a week, I'll try to hold myself to this this time. This family is clinging to the Middle Ages because they're like an ancient family, right? And they got this old house and stuff. And modernity, which is the people coming in and wanting to dissect the body and they're part of science... They're af- he's afraid of that and wants to just bury her, and it's sort of a conflict between modernity and their old noble house. Okay. And their house just dies, I guess, at the end. I don't know. Where do, you, a, where do you think happens to the, to the house of Usher after the two? Well, it falls it apart. Phys- Physically falls apart. Okay, because he, cra- he keeps talking about the crack. He can barely goes, see, expanded. Okay. So, so weirdly enough, the fall of the house of Usher is literally what happens in the book, which I that's actually, we usually do a thing called The Biggest Surprise, on our podcast, and how literal that was is my biggest surprise. It was like, oh, the actual house, it's not like the house, He talks like about that at the beginning. There's this crack that goes down yeah. the middle, right? Yeah, yeah, it actually just collapses into the glacial lake that's there. So I still think, again, going back to them having all this leisure time, like they literally just sit around for weeks and his friend reads to him. Yeah. Reads wouldn't a book. I, I forget nice. what he was reading to him. But, yeah. Um, and yeah, no, so I have to wonder, and I've been, as you know, I've, um, you know, when I was much younger, I could deal with it a lot better than I can now. Okay. Um, Downtime? No, um, foul smells. Oh. Um, I've, you know, unfortunately have to encounter deceased human beings um, right. on a semi-regular basis. Yeah. And um, if you, you, you never smelled rotting flesh? Oh, not human rotting flesh, I don't think. I've been around dead animals. Put- it's like a putrid. Yeah. It's almost uh, yeah. a sweet... Like, I can't imagine it's too different. It's and, very unpleasant. Yeah. Well, um, and just the idea, and I'm like, you sat in a effing house with a dead body for two weeks? Like, Well, it is in a cellar. They put, they put true. her in the cellar, which is probably cold. But yeah, it's pretty pretty gross. It's a big house. Yeah, so. that's my first thought. And of course, yeah, it, this is the way he describes it. It's cold, wet, like... Yeah, and they she was pretty deep under. Didn't, wasn't it kind of an underground, like a cellar kind of? Yeah, it was a place that they used as a dungeon in the Middle Ages, and okay. then as a powder storage room, like in the modern period. And so, I mean, it's someplace meant to be set aside from the rest of the building for whatever reason. So, as a general, generally, what do you give? Thumbs up or thumbs down to follow the House of Usher? I liked it more than I thought I would. I thought it was pretty good. I think it. I think one of the big things to note about it is I don't know if there's a haunted house in literature before this. I think this may be the haunted house. Now, I, obviously, that's something you'd want to 
research and find out whether that's true. But for me, this is what I'm seeing as being one of the first or the first haunted house in literature. It's got a lot. There's even the poem, The Haunted Palace, that he reads. So the phrase haunted house probably jumps out of this story. Well, I, could, I guess I could be wrong, but we could do our due diligence. There's and say, a house are of we, seven gables in Nathaniel Hawthorne. I right. Guess, are we are we looking at this from a, a strictly Western? Well, we only can do English liter- English language because we don't speak these other. So exactly, because somebody is going to exactly, show up here yeah, and say, no, "Well, Chinese literature absolutely. has yeah. a professional literature person could, I'm sure, find some other." But then you'd have to ask, did Poe read that Chinese work and was he inspired by it, or is it, you know, I mean, this would be the thing that created it in our literature. But who knows? Do you know. do you care to move on to the the, the cask of Amontillado, yeah, sure, which I sure. actually think is one of the coolest. My, I think that's my favorite. That one stuck in my head. Again, that was in the book I read when I was a little kid, and even though it was creepy, I actually kind of dug it. Like I was like, "This is this is weird," but I kind of like it for some reason. Now there are several things that kind of uh, jumped out at me that I hadn't really thought about since I'd read this. You know, it had been it's been you know a couple years since I read this actual story. Um, so what's his name? And I'm I'm gonna Fortunato. It's not Fortunato, is it? Yeah, Fortunato. Monster is the killer, and and Fortunato's the. Uh, the killie. The killie, right. The guy who gets sealed behind the mm-hmm. wall. So who knew in 19th century Italy people were cosplaying? Oh, yeah. Because remember he says- well, for he's, carnival, for carnival. It's yeah. a carnival, so yeah. he's dressed as like this jester, right? I saw a reference to it. Do you know Do you know what? So this is another thing where you think about it, when you get into reading a lot of literature, you say to yourself, this guy's wearing a, a he's wearing motley. He's dressed as a jester. Court jester, yeah. Court. Why does he do that? Why does Poe choose to put him in that outfit? And one of the interesting things I saw was- He wants to maybe embarrass his friend for- He wants to maybe- That's good. Because he, like he that. kills yeah. him because the guy disrespected embarrass him, right? him by dressing him in something he's dressed up like a, like a fool. Yeah, okay. But, and he's drunk. But the bells all over his costume- in the 1800s, people were terrified of being buried alive. Of course. And so they would literally bury people with bells on their bodies. So, so that you could they, hear if they them. woke up, they could ring the bells and people would come and get them out of the grave. I don't know if that ever happened or worked, but it was definitely a thing that happened. So I was thinking that could be why. That, so Fortunato was expecting to die that day? or No, no, no. I mean Poe puts him in bells okay. to remind you of burial, of, of being buried alive. Okay, which again, we so, know. So I've heard, I don't know how much how much truth to this. So of course we know that that was a big thing, a big fear back in that day. Yeah. Which and and Poe was, was terrified of that. Was he? Okay. And that somebody, I don't know... It, if you could source this, but I remember somebody mentioning at some point talking about Poe that he was his great. He was dug up some years later, and there were like claw marks at the inside uh, of his. That sounds apocryphal. That sounds like a myth to me. But I don't of, know. of course, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll just go with. It. I mean, it's, it's great. I like it's it. good for the I like story. It a lot, yeah. But that that Where's seems he buried to, in Baltimore. I don't know. Huh. Okay. Um, but in any case, um, in all of these stories, it happens. It's somebody dies and somebody comes back to life. There's or a there's, lot of those, yeah. In all three of these stories. Well, there's there's murders and there's burial. I mean, House of Usher, the woman gets buried in the in the crypt and then comes back up. Right. Black Cat, the, the wife, is buried behind the wall. Telltale Heart, the, he buries the man beneath the, the floorboards. And the Casca of Amontillado, the guy's buried behind the wall. So, yeah, there's definitely a... Maybe there's no coming back to life here, but he... Um, they're all about death, because the it, poems are about losing your losing your beloved, both Annabelle Lee and... Raven, right. Um, so, in any case, he he tells Fortunato that. And now, who's the third guy that he he doesn't trust? To, he was going to go to this other guy for Les, an opinion. Lasacio or something like that. Lascari, Lascari, I think it is. 
Okay. You're talking about the guy who's no good at, at judging. He doesn't know Amontillado from Sherry. That's what even Fortunato though Amontillado says. is Sherry, which is a really dumb thing to say. So have you ever had Sherry? Uh, no, I haven't. No, yes, I have. I got it once at a restaurant because I was like, oh, I think I'll have Sherry because I've never had Sherry and I don't remember the experience at all. So I don't I remember know t- sipping it one time on New Year's. Is it a Swedish? I don't know. I haven't had it since I was like ten years old. I had like a sip okay. of it in my uncle's house. It was gross. Hmm. But I mean, any Everything alcohol you drink at that 10. age, yeah, exactly. So, but um, but Amontillado is a type of sherry. Okay. So Fortunato saying that the other guy doesn't know the difference between sherry and Amontillado is to show that Fortunato's doesn't know what he's talking. Doesn't about. know what he's talking about. And we never find out what exactly Fortunato did to him. No. Nope. Although it seems mostly to be based on. They have a reversal of fortunes because Montresor comes from a from a noble family that's on hard times, and Fortunato comes from a poorer family that's doing better. Right. So that's probably the entirety of the problem between the two of them is that. Another he's thing that of him. it takes me a while, and again, reading literature, I, I have a hard time reading into things and kind of seeing where things are going. He starts talking about these catacombs, and he mm-hmm. starts talking about having to move this pile of of bones. Right. And I'm thinking to myself. Where the hell in, in North America in the 1820s do they have catacombs? I think a lot of these stories take place in Europe. Well, no, this one takes yeah. place in Italy, but yeah. it didn't yeah, yeah. dawn on me at the time. Right. Which I still don't quite understand. I remember being, you know, studying history in college and thinking, now, did they wait till the bodies completely decomposed to start stacking the bones all neatly? Or like, how did that work? Because I've seen pictures and it almost looks like they were painstakingly there's places where they did that. There's a church in Prague that's really, or outside of Prague right. that's really famous for just being completely decorated with bones all on the inside. But I'm like talking about the, underground the catacombs. catacombs in Paris. I'm pretty sure what they did is they put a body and it would just rot away, and and you, they if, would just stack if you were to walk through, you'd come across bodies in various states of decomposition. Again, like all this foul smell, and it doesn't seem to bother. Yeah, that would be creepy. Yeah, that's got to be a, a really. And the and yeah. the pre-planning that he has to do to have all that. There's talk about him being a whether or not he's a mason, right? There's some discussion of yes. that. There's so Fortunato does like a mason symbol, and and Montresor doesn't get it. He doesn't get it at first. Makes fun of him for it. He's sort of that's another thing. It's like the jealousy of like the guy who's making more money and doing better in life, essentially. Because I guess being a mason would be. I mean, the masons obviously control everything in our society today. Behind the, I mean that and the the Rothschilds, those two groups are in charge of everything, right? And the Illuminati. But in those days. Even more so, they were in charge. And the Illuminati as well, sorry. <laughs> I don't want to forget them and have them come after me. Right. But. So he, and he, he doesn't, I'm still trying to figure out how he actually, so so Fortunato's like pissed drunk and he's yeah. he's giving him more wine on the way down there. And so I guess he kind of right. gets behind him and he, he gives him really good wine and Fortunato just gulps it down and tosses the bottle aside. Which I also thought was kind of interesting because he passes it, likes to pass himself off as this like right. aficionado of fine. Right. He's not even tasting it. He's just exactly. There's multiple things showing that he doesn't know anything. Which is, if you could think of some, so if Montresor hates the guy for being nouveau riche, that would be the number one thing. There he doesn't you go. Know anything about wine would be one of the things you'd. He's look not down sophisticated. Your if, if you're the guy who's who comes from a noble family with no money, and you got this nouveau riche guy. You'd make fun of him for not knowing about wine, I imagine. That makes sense. Now, I, it's, it's not 100% clear how he actually ties him to the wall. He's got some kind of chain. Chains. Yeah, he's got chains. Well, I guess Fortunato's drunk enough that he, he is not able to put up much of a fight. Yeah, I don't know what kind of moves he used to put the guy in the chains without he, he notice, got but. He let him walk ahead, and he pushed him, and like was basically to wrap a chain around him, was able to lock him. Okay. And he puts, like, what, seven layers of 
Something like, did they count how many? Yeah, he's going one. He's talking about, first I got my, through my yeah. first layer, then my third layer, and he's still talking and still trying to fight against the. They're big bricks because he's talking about having trouble lifting up right. in place. So, yeah, maybe seven layers might do it. And it's, I'm, I'm assuming because it's wet down there, he's got enough like water to mix all the like the mortar and. Yeah. Well, he's hidden it all under the bones. Under the bones. He gonna, moves the bones. Everything he's going to use is under the bones. Yeah. So. Which took uh, obviously a lot of planning and a forethought and. See, now right there, I haven't thought about this, but if you want grist for your interpretive mill, the fact that he hid everything under a pile of bones, I guarantee the author intended something there. I don't know what it is, but that's where when you want to get into interpreting something, that's a strange choice, right? He hid everything under a pile of bones. so Or it was just convenient that he was in a catacombs. and so You're being too literal. You're being too literal. I guarantee Poe had something else in mind there, but I don't know what it is. But Or maybe we could make something of the fact that you go down amongst the dead to drink all your wine. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't, and you know, so I should have my friend Liz here. Is, oh, it's good. It's a good place to trick him. And then, and then when he's dead, there'll be, there'll be more bones down there and nobody will suspect anything because this is where bones go. But go. I guarantee there's a metaphor there as well. We know? just haven't, we haven't figured it out We just haven't yet. really peeled the, uh, peeled the wrapping off of it and understood it. Peeled the wrapping off of it and understood There's a metaphor. It. That's pretty good. <laughs> Now, the Telltale Heart. The Telltale Heart, yeah. That's the one that creeped me out when I was a little kid. But it, it, Did it creep uh, you out this time? I mean, it's pretty tough. It's pretty hard to creep me out now. I've, I've read a lot of stuff, seen a lot of stuff in my life, um, but I could see why it, it gave me the willies. When it, there were also these drawings. It was an illustrated book. I remember the drawing of the old man's vulture eye. The, the, it's that like, light, what is it, what is it called, the light he, blue ice? Some kind of film over his eye. I right. think he's got like glaucoma or something, so this I can, guy I, it, hates him and wants to kill him for that, which is, you know, already. He, he actually illustrates that really well, because reading that, I can actually picture it. Yes, yeah. And and yeah. I maybe because he's using the term vulture, I can see he has this kind of this hookish. Yeah, big beaky nose. Hookish and nose, like yeah. like these yeah, like circles under his eyes. Yeah. And, um, and, and what does the old man fall ill with? What does the old man fall ill with? What do you? Uh, I don't know. Because remember, he keeps poking his head in to make to see if he's dead yet. Like he pokes his head in every night. What like, is he doing there? I didn't really. I thought that was sort of like to get the guy used to the idea of him creeping in at night, so that he could get in there and murder him. But then it, it doesn't really seem to use that. I don't know what's going on there. I, I remember he pokes his head in every night uh-huh. to see if, the, and then he makes For like a noise. A week. Yeah. Yeah, and then finally the guy dies, and of course, now this is actually. Well, he doesn't die. Let's let's give credit where credit's due. The narrator well, goes in there purposes, and smothers him to death. Okay, so yeah, he goes in there and smothers him. But in any case, he, he's dead, mm-hmm. or at least we think he is. Okay, uh, for purposes of, of the story, the chronology of the story. But um, and then he he um, this is probably the darkest of all the post stuff. He actually dismembers him right there. Yes, yes, in a tub. In a tub. Goes and puts him in a tub and chops him up. Which I'm like. That gets done in so much stuff in fiction, like in our in our day. You know, you hear about that kind of thing all the time, like Fargo with the guy getting put into the wood chipper and stuff like that. Like, well, I just I just that kind watched... of grisly detail must have really creeped people out back then. That would have been out of nowhere. Well, and again, and this is the only story I can think of of Pose where you actually dismember somebody. But I was just watching that episode. You're a Sopranos guy, right? I saw it all. Yeah, I think you're way more. I've seen, I, I will I literally watch that from episode one through episode like 84. Did you seen like multiple times? <laughs> multiple, multiple times. Yeah. I just okay. watched season four where, where Tony kills Ralphie. Tony and he calls, oh, right, he calls right, Christopher right. over, they put him in the bathtub and Joey they have to pants. dismember him. Joey Pants, right? The Joey Pants, yeah. yes. Joey pants, yeah. um, I just, well, he would talk about Joey Pants. He was just in Goonies. Uh-huh. I, I, I was watching everything. I actually had, um, I don't mean to derail you, but just it comes up, it's an anecdote. 
I was at a like an independent movie showing that Joe, Joe Pantoliano and one of his friends directed. So they were there in the audience with us watching this thing in New York. And we watched the whole movie. And I went out to go to the bathroom, like in the middle of the movie. And I opened the great big, you know, you open those big bat wing doors almost to get out of a movie theater. And Joe Pantoliano is standing on the other side of it. And I had this second where I knew I recognized his face. I knew I'd, <laughs> he was I'd, that seen, guy. I'd seen his face like my whole life, but I was just like, I had this mode of being like, hey, it's one of my friends. It was like that kind of, and he just walked past me, you know, because yeah. he must get that all the time. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah, you don't know me. I've been seeing your face since I saw Goonies when I was seven. Right. No. And in The Matrix and in Sopranos and I mean, in everything. Well, there's an actual award. Have you? I know we've talked about the rewatchables. Yes. The That's podcast they talk about the Joey, the Joey Pants Award. award. Yeah, it's exactly. the That Guy that Award. That Guy, yeah. Like, exactly. who in this movie is the That Guy? You right. see him everywhere. Right, you don't right. know his name. How the hell did we get on that? We were talking about that because- You, started not to, you said, sorry not to derail you or yeah, something. I, but I derailed you completely. You were talking about we, something that he was in. Uh, the Sopranos, the dismemberment. Oh, so with a dismemberment, the yeah. right? And they put him in the bathtub, and then and then Christopher. If we have um, a pause. I might need another beer. Christopher, here's the here's the bottle opener. He's sitting in the bathtub. And Christopher goes to grab onto his head to go to like chop his head off, and his his toupee comes off. He also has the toupee and Goonies. There you go. Thanks, Dave. For Dave's opening a beer, and he's standing away from the mic. Yes, so that was a bad to... idea. I should have just walked back. I didn't want the like beer opening noise, but then again, that's a little that's, authenticity. That's, yeah, that's, there you go. Away. There's some authenticity. But again, so he again, this is where I get like they just totally don't get at all the idea that that a, a rotting corpse is going to effing stink. He pulls up the floorboards and like bu- like buries him, puts his body under the floorboards. Well, not, yeah, okay, if for future purposes, but when the cops show up, it's like three hours after he killed the guy. Either way, he's not like— But yeah, he's not making much of a plan for the future. And again, you know, we don't talk directly about what I do for my day job, but uh, I'm, I'm, as somebody who's investigated a few homicides— I plan to ask you about that my with fr- these stories, because these stories are about the psychology of the murderer. Right, well, the, my first so, thought is, like, that's going to stink, dude. Like, uh, you got to do something with the body. It's true. But I'm, I'm just thinking, that's my whole line of thinking right then, is like, you dummy, like you can't just put body parts. I was under thinking the same thing though. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. When and the fact that somebody maybe it's temporary, heard maybe he's planning on exhuming from underneath the floor later once the cops go away. But but he doesn't when he puts them under there, he doesn't know that somebody in the somebody on the street hears a shriek or something like that. Yeah. Which I think it's the terminology used. Somebody heard a shriek. Yes. And they summon yeah. the police and, they, and then of course what he can't hold it in any longer. The cops start to they look around the whole house and, and Do you then, know that do you know that happened in my family one time? We do just, tell. We were all at home one day. We're just like playing around. We're like having like a tickle fight or something. And like my daughter like shrieked. And, you know, we all forgot. Like two hours later, the police show up at our house. And they're like, somebody was walking through the woods and they heard a scream in your house. And we were like, what? And we're like, oh, that was that was just us playing around. I'm like, what What kind of nosy neighbor? Where was this? This was back in Virginia, that at our house in Virginia. Ouch. About 10 years ago or something like that. But, but we, were, we were okay. We didn't get in any trouble. But in, in any case. Probably on a list somewhere. You're on a list. I can find out for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be. Thank you. It, it might be outside the scope of what I'm really supposed to do, but yeah, you know, I do have access to information, Dave. <laughs> but is that like something like that would turn up? Like if you were looking up something about somebody in Fairfax County, Virginia? You could so there's it? this thing called Links, and it's okay. actually oddly enough, it's run by the Naval Investigative Criminal NCIA and Native Criminal Investigation Service, and it's it's the only departments that contribute information to it. Are technically ones that have this have a navy base or, or a coast guard base nearby, and I don't know how we're involved because we're we're nowhere near water. But I can literally, um, I, I was doing a background check maybe on the days a couple when years the Rio ago and found Grande some water. A coast guard goes and I don't know. 
hundreds I, of thousands of years so, ago. Yeah. No, it's interesting though the things that the things that you can find. I actually was doing a background check on somebody a couple of years ago, and I found some reports from Fairfax County Police. Okay, so that I would there. not have found otherwise. All right. Um, okay. So you never know. All right. Um, but those things get audited once a month, and I would never do anything. I, a lot of you have to attach a case. Number, you can't just do it like, recreationally, just looking. People well, you up, could look up your I mean, college girlfriend you or might, whatever. And you might be looking for a job. Yeah. Okay. All um, right. You would never do that. Yeah. Exactly. No, not, no, I, I got bills to pay. Although right. I am eligible to retire, so at this point I'm like... There you go. Any day I feel like you know going off the deep end and going, what's his name, uh, Michael, and falling down? Oh, When Michael you just Douglas. lose it and you're like, you yeah. know what, I could just retire, I'm going to take a month vacation yeah. and turn in my papers. No, I wouldn't do that. But yes, I, I really could find out that information. Okay. Now this was, the, of, course, of course, the third of the books that we talked about, and we've gone in order. So as I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. well, of course, he's going to kill somebody and he's going to do something with their body that's not going to hide the stench very well. And then, of course... Um, well, that's what I was going to ask you about this. So a lot of this is about the psychology of the guilt of the murderer, right? Or even, these guys seem kind of like sociopaths, so I don't know if it's guilt, but it's like the fear of being caught makes them give themselves up, especially Black Cat and Telltale Heart. Same story in a lot of ways. They freak out they, and they let the cops know that they've killed somebody. And I wanted to let I wanted to ask you whether in real life do killers... Did they just, you never know that they killed somebody? They just cover it up and they, they don't show any signs of guilt? Or do people actually freak out like this and not able to? Yeah, I'm sure it's possible. And like, you know, I'm, I can't sit here and say that I've, you know, investigated dozens upon dozens of murders. I mean, I, I have, I'll pat myself on the back. I have an 80% clearance rate on my homicides. But um, okay. as far as the psychology, I, I can't even read that far into it. I can tell you the psychology now I've had, and this is amazing, um, it's not uncommon. You know, I investigate a lot of child sexual assaults mm-hmm. and you, sometimes people are dumb enough. You'll call them up and they'll actually come in and talk to you. You know, no attorney, no nothing. And, um, what I have found That's is not these, dumb, by the way, people accused of sexual assault out there, please continue to go. Yes, into, please show into, up and uh, talk to me. Detective Andrew's office. <laughs> um, but the, the, so this is the thing. And the best I can tell their psychology is this. If I show up and keep my cool. Yeah. Then everything will be good. Okay. And every and, damn one but of them. Do people keep their cool when they're talking to you? Do people freak out? Do people? No, no. The people keep their, these guys who make the decision. They've done these horrible things. They make the decision to come in and talk, and they they're like, "Hey, if I just stay cool and don't lose my, don't get indignant," and mm-hmm. and that's to me one of the telltale things. You know, if I and I'm very clear and I'm very methodical and I'm very detailed. Right. And I take what I learned during interview from somebody who has had these things done to them. Right. And I basically spit it back at this person and I get really detailed. Yeah. And I say, did you do X, Y, Z, one, two, three? And I go through the whole thing. And anybody who has any conscience, anybody who has any brains about them, and anybody who didn't do this would lose their effing mind and be like, are you crazy? Yeah. Are you kidding yeah. me? And yeah. get up and walk out. These people keep, these guys keep their cool. Right. And they just figure, hey, if I just come in here and stay calm and deny everything and make up, you know, bullshit excuses for everything, it's all going to be good. And I can tell you that every single one who's come in and done that is in prison now. Yeah, wow. So keep coming in and talking to me without your attorney. exactly. Please, I don't even know if we should put this out there because these are people I definitely want you to (laughs) continue your clearance rate on. Right. Now, poetry. I'm going to tell you right now, I have zero effing use for poetry as an art form. Not a big poetry guy. But but I know it's a character flaw in myself. I don't think poetry is bad. Why is it a character bad. flaw? I don't think poetry is bad. I think poetry is beautiful, and I'm glad there's poetry in the world. I have sort of a blind spot to enjoying it. And I, 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 I judge myself, not poetry, is what I mean. I'm always like, 
because occasionally it gets through. And like you listen to music, sometimes the lyrics reach you in a way, and that's poetry, right? Yeah. So the 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 way that people condense their language into something beautiful and do something really cool with it, I have a lot of respect for that. But I just have a little bit of trouble really fully appreciating it. Um, I didn't love the poems. I don't think it's a character flaw at all. I look some look each of us enjoys and can appreciate different art forms and not all you know we don't like all of the different art someone came in here to do the podcast with us we did another toasting the classics episode and they came in here with their favorite beer and it was miller light would that be a character flaw absolutely okay so they're not appreciating something that you love and that brings joy (laughs) to your life and that is an art i would just say i feel sorry for somebody like that that's what i'm saying maybe they haven't had the opportunity to drink real beer Right. I feel sorry for myself for not being able to appreciate poetry the way that I know some people can. I know professional poets. I know people that do it like as a job, and I know they're great, and I just, I, I can't really... It's not an art form that speaks to you. Not really. I like a good, maybe not it's really. the 12 year old boy in me, but I love a good limerick. <laughs> Especially a dirty, not, you was know... Was Edgar Allan Poe, was he from Nantucket? Stop right there. Okay. This is a family show. Ah, uh, okay. All right. All right. Fair I enough. think, and those of you who ever read Truly Tasteless Jokes, volumes one, two, and three, <laughs> that you used to be able to get it. It's not. It wasn't Crown Books. What was the one? It was. It was where Mister Walden Books. Walden was that the one where Mister Smith used to be before Mister Smith was there. Oh my god! You mean Mr. I'm Smith's talking about in the town? early eighties. Uh, Mister Smith's in Georgetown. You're talking about? No, I'm in Tyson's Pike Seven Plaza. Oh, that would have been a Walden Books or a Crown. Yeah, it wasn't Probably a Crown. I think. Crown. It, I think it was no? a Walden. Okay. Yeah. But I remember being, you know, 10, 11 years old and getting the truly tasteless yeah. and reading nice. about the man from Nantucket who's, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, we all know it. Yeah. I can, I can appreciate. I literally just have to refer to this one poor island off the coast of New England where that happens to rhyme with. Uh, so basically sophomoric humor, if your poetry yes. inc- includes something like that. Um, all right. I, you know, I actually dig, I dig haiku. I used to write haiku all the time because I could do it. Right, because any idiot you know, can five, seven, write five thing is pretty easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not. I don't, I'm not into Shakespeare's sonnets, but I'll read a limerick yeah, and some haiku yeah. all day long. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I don't really have anything to say. The, the thing I do know about Annabelle Lee, and I just read something about this today. So in Annabelle Lee, he's talking about it's his young love, and so I guess maybe we can start talking about because pretty obvious to me, it's his lost wife that he married when she was young. So there's a whole bunch of debate about it. I saw on the internet, but I was like, it's pretty clearly. The interpretation I saw was that it was a young love of his, but he had all of these women in his life, not necessarily romantic But he married his first cousin. She was much younger than him. She died very young. He must have been just devastated by it. And it sounds, the the words of the poem seem to fit. They fit, but at the same time, all of the women in his life died young. His mother, biological mother, died died at 24 of tuberculosis. And then his foster mother, and then he had that, it was his best friend's mother, who also died young. Was that who it was? I was trying to. I thought it, it was, was just his friend. There was there was a woman who died when he was young, and then there was his wife that died when she was young. And it's just no. I think you're right. I think though people generally think it was a young love. But I was going to say the difference is there was a very high mortality rate for white ladies from consumption in the 1800s. Apparently, I'm just from consumption. Yeah, childbirth, consumption, childbirth, consumption, everything. Yeah. So well, you know, and another Us guys, thing, if we didn't go off to war, I think we were fine. Or if we didn't drink ourselves to death. You know, you know there's so much we could actually and and and. and you're right. We we talked about this the other day. We could probably do an entire episode of probably one of these stories, trying oh, to squeeze totally. all these totally. in. People make careers about this. It might stuff. be a tall order, but one I don't of the know things if anybody would want to listen to us talk about each one. I, as a matter of fact, I don't know if anybody's still listening to us now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is right. going on the longest podcast, and I'm not drunk or anything, but I am feeling a little bit of my 
I feel I'm, it. I'm lubed feel up it. a little bit. Yeah, I feel it. It's not too bad. I can still drive home. I'm not yeah. going to have to nap in the parking lot. Yeah. Um, so so th- what I didn't know until I watched this doc, we all know that he went to West Point and got kicked out. He actually enlisted before that. He was an enlisted soldier. I did not soldier. know he went to West Point. You did he went to UVA. I know he's in the military. Did he go to West Point? So he actually, before that, he enlisted. I missed that. Somehow. And apparently was a good soldier. No, I, I heard he was a good soldier. I heard about that. At, but I didn't as know an enlisted okay. soldier, which to me, you know, I think if you're used to the easy life, military is not going to be... Military life's not going to be very comfortable for you, but he, some people, if they have a lot of psychological issues and they can't like figure out what to do with their lives, they the like military the structure. is exactly what they need. Yeah. So he apparently was a very good soldier, and then ended up with an appointment to West Point, and then just got sick of the whole thing and stopped showing up to drill and stopped showing up to yeah, okay, stopped showing up to class and got kicked out. He keeps talking about in Annabelle Lee. He's he's pretty sure that he's going to see her again someday, right? As opposed to the Raven, and then he gets his answer in the Raven. He says never more. Right. He's not going to see her anymore. Oddly enough- Remember the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror? Like one of the first ones was like, quote the Raven, eat my shorts. I, I remember eating my every, shorts. I'm not a huge Simpsons Every guy. time I hear quote the Raven, never more, I think quote the Raven, eat my shorts because of that. I No, I don't remember that. But, oh, my. so my oldest sister, Sorry, Leslie, was married on a riverboat in Richmond called the Annabelle Lee. Oh, nice. We had we had the wedding. Um, no, we had I like the wedding. that. I was at the wedding. I like that. Um, this is your sister? My yes, my oldest sister Leslie, nineteen ninety seven, I believe, so okay. many eons ago. Um, but this is the other thing that I I thought um, you know when when you talk about a twenty seven year old man who marries his thirteen year old first cousin. Mm-hmm. By the way, not outside. It is not that is. What am I trying to say? Not that weird for those days. Not that weird for those days, and believe it or not, in the state of New Mexico, first cousins are still within the lawfully allowed degree of consanguinity i think that's true in a lot of states actually yeah but the 13 would be not even in new mexico so in new mexico you i mean you you must know what you cannot consent to any sexual act under the age of 13 however until you are 16 you can't consent to sexual acts anybody more than four years older so a 13 year old can consent to a 17 year old a 14 to an 18 a 15 to a 19 once you turn 16 you can do a 90 year old and it's in any case you're saying that like we don't like it like a it's 17 is just fine for anybody. 16 is fine for anybody. Right. So a 16 year old could, could get it on with a 90 year old and unless that 90 year old's in a position of authority, like being a teacher or a, or a and then it would be illegal. Then it would be illegal because really? they're, exactly until they turn 18. Cause that, that you could be said that that person use was using their position of authority. Oh, I didn't realize that was a law. That's interesting. I, th- but, I know, I know that's like wrong. Yeah. Like we, you know, that in our, the me too culture and stuff like that, but I didn't know that was actually a law. That's not just me too. It's, it's kind of gross. No, no, but I mean, in terms of, I thought that our culture as a whole had turned against that sort of thing because of the Me Too movement. I didn't realize that that was actually a law. That's some. Um, so when I when I think of twenty seven year olds who marry their thirteen year old first cousins, you think of Edgar Allan Poe and Jerry Lee Lewis, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. if you watch this documentary and you talk about how, so he had, but she was going to be like married to somebody else was the reason why he decided to lock it down. I don't. I there was a, there was a whole storm in the family. She was going to be promised to somebody. And he was like, no, like, I want to marry you. So everybody's like, nobody had a problem with her getting married when she was 13, I guess is my well, point. Well, and they said in the doc that that wasn't necessarily outside the norm. But right. I now I didn't get that. What I got was the take was he was so lonely and had so few biological relatives hmm. that he had this aunt who had lived in Baltimore who had this 13-year-old, you know, uh, Clem, what was her name? Clem Jones, maybe? It, it, whatever it was, he... And so this is funny. They, um, you know, they never had any children. So that begs the question. I mean, did they, 
did they not consummate or in any case it was described in this documentary that he was not looking at her necessarily as a as a romantic interest mm. that he really was looking for for family connection and they even said when he would come home from work she would run out the front door and greet him with this big hug kind of like your dog or your kids do you know you come home from work yeah. Yeah. um but that he also tried to he paid for her private tutors and he paid for her music lessons um and they would sit around taught her algebra he, did he teach her algebra mm-hmm. yeah there was a story about how he, he taught her algebra and some other subjects and stuff like that in any case like every other woman in his life she ended up dying young right I've talked about all I want to talk about. What else? What do you have, Dave? I mean, is there thing you said there are some things you do in your podcast? We always talk about. So I have this philosophy. We didn't talk about the Red Death. Um, Mask of the Red Death. It's not much to say. I mean, it's um, essentially a metaphor for death. How death it's kind of like you. the way death it was, finds you, no matter what you do. Sounds like Ebola to me. The way he describes it. Uh, it's just an imaginary disease. Was the impression I got? It wasn't any bleeding it, through it, your you pores. Bleed through your pores and, and you die in a half an hour. That's not a thing. I mean, that's, that's be, that sounds like Ebola. Yeah. Well, I guess so. Even Ebola doesn't kill you in a half an hour, but it, you know, it's it's something like that. But the the point being that these people ensconce themselves in a fortress with all the the best things in life, and they think they can get away from this plague, and then it sneaks in and kills them all. And it's like, well, that's pretty much that's death. No matter what you do, death is coming. Death and old age are coming for you. And the rooms in the house are different colors, which apparently in those days, those colors were like coded to different parts of your life. Like blue was birth, black was death. And so all the rooms in this house and the, anyway, so I don't know. I didn't think much of that story. It was, you know, it's okay. It's a little pithy metaphor, but not too but much. But you also say. said something when you get to the end, you ask if it was toastable. We all, well, we, yeah, we do, we do two things. We do, what was your biggest surprise? Because I, I have a tendency to think that when we actually sit down and read a classic, there tends to be something in there you didn't think was going to be in there. My example is always when you sit down and read the Iliad, the Battle of Troy, there's no horse. It's not in there. You know, everybody just talks about the Trojan horse. That's not in the Iliad. It doesn't happen. It happens in some other Roman story years and years later. Um, so I always think, of what did, you know, when, when, we, when you sat down and confronted this text, what did you not expect? What, what did you catch? I, I think that, that I kind of touched on it before is I had read a good half dozen of his short stories, uh-huh. but I had never read more than one within a couple of years of each other. Yeah. So sure. reading these all together, things kind of all came together for me. Like at least all of his tragedies or all of his horrors, they're all, they're all the effing same. It's like, the exact same thing. I was everybody say. dies. Yeah. Yep. They completely overlook the idea that you can't bury a body without it starting to stink within, you know, <laughs> right. again, right. I'm sorry, I'm bringing my real life yeah. into this. Um, and your then, concrete observations about how to murder someone. And this then is, don't don't just bury them in the house, especially if you live. And in by the, the way, especially if you live in like Virginia or Maryland, where it gets quite humid in the summer, it gross. This is, this is not going to go well. No. And to be perfectly honest, I've thought about this. I know way too much about how to find a killer and solve a homicide sure. Sure. that I could never kill somebody and hide a body with any confidence. Just like knowing. Oh, I thought tech- you were going to say the opposite. I thought no, you'd, no, no, you'd no. Like I would really be good at it. No, I would oh, be too okay. scared of getting caught because okay. I know of all the all the different investigative techniques and sure th- science that's out there that could lead me. Like you literally can't. I mean, something as simple as you leave your goddamn cell phone at home because we can track your tower movements. And yeah, get tower dumps. Well, and- that's what Durst did. You see that thing? The um, that guy Durst. The guy, his last name was Durst, and he like murdered multiple. Not women. Fred. No, it's not Fred, not the guy from Limp Biscuit. Right. This is a, the murderer that was on the HBO special, and he was like, you, they could tell he had turned off his phone, like left his phone and gone, and they were like, he had just enough time to drive here and drop off the body, and he understood. Yeah. 
you know. I actually had my first which is, which is circumstantial evidence that you can't use against him turning off well, your no, phone. Well, no, but it's one piece it's one, of right. you know a whole bunch of right. my first homicide I ever had. We had a couple of it. You could you can't tell when a phone powers off, but you can tell when it powers on. So okay. and we could see several powering on events within an hour or two after he committed the murder. Right. But no, you can't. That's I've that have to be part of a whole bunch of other things. That, oh, of course, that no. You, you put it. Jury, you, you put yeah. it. You put it with a you know a million other things to kind of make your case. But right. lest anybody think I'm, I've thought about this because I actually do want to kill somebody. No, it's just one of these things that you think of. <laughs> I'm not planning on killing anybody. Everybody be but, nice um, to Larry. And no, no, again, we've we've gotten derailed. Um, yeah, no, we so were there's so, a predictability. I, yeah, like what you're saying about your biggest surprise about the commonality between these, between mm-hmm. these stories is exactly what I was going to say. The, the the burials in multiple books and the dead woman in multiple books and some like, people coming back to life and this being is buried one alive. guy's and, obsessions coming out in the course of his work and his psychological obsessions. I mean, so if I were to try to analyze them as literature, it's almost like am I or am I just analyzing what he dreams about at night? It's not even so much like a a conscious metaphor as the things that scare this guy. You know, yeah. I would love to see an FBI profiler of, break, of Poe break him down. John oh, Douglas or one of these guys. Guarantee it's been done. You know, he had that enemy that that, that they had like the back and forth. I can't remember well, the guy's it, name. Longfellow. He had a beef with Longfellow. He I mean, did. long before rapper beefs. Was it Longfellow? Was the guy that I'm talking I think about? It that was. He did, what did he say? He, he he really he roasted somebody. Was it Longfellow? I think so. Yes, he called Longfellow a plagiarist. Right, right. Literally accused him of plagiarism, yes. Yeah, they had right. beef. Yeah. They had beef long yes. before Biggie beef and Tupac. Everybody. Apparently he got a big mouth. He would write these terrible reviews He would probably get drunk and talk shit about people. And Yeah. Also, you know, a lot of writers really like to crap on other writers. It's like something they like to do. I'm telling you, it was um, just predating, you know, rapper beef, street yeah. beefs. Yeah, yeah, This is like Biggie and, and Tupac. You know, anything else, day. Dave? Anything else you yeah, want to Yeah, we need to? to decide whether we're toasting this classic. I'm to- oh, absolutely. Oh, I thought you said you didn't like Poe as much as you no, did No, I don't like him as much as I used to, but I mean, you can't not. Okay, okay. Now, let's, I mean, I'll drink to anything, but. Right. We're going to no, drink no matter what. We are so going to, we're going to drink not, no matter what. Your drinking is not contingent on whether you toast. We're just deciding whether we toast. No, I'll toast him. Okay. He's All definitely right. worth it. All right. Let's, um. I'll raise and, a glass can we, as well. Can we do this? Yeah, are I we sitting? Can we, can. And we did it loud enough. That was going to be was my next question. That actually pretty impressive. Even off, even off mic, I think that's going to sound good. And I think I gulped loud enough. Yep. You, one of the, you know one of the things, and you'll notice this because we're going to be doing a little farewell thing this next coming up weekend. You guys are coming get, over this weekend, right? right? Get awesome. within a couple feet of my wife when she drinks something. Okay. She gulps the loudest. Does she do the little kid thing where you go, <sighs> She doesn't do that. Okay. But you can hear her gulp from across the room. Nice. It's one of the first things I notice about her and annoys the shit out of me. Wow. And my kid, uh, the older one, so Lily really, does it's it too. just you just think she's super cute. That's why you married her. It's you, you can't stand. That's another whole podcast, Dave. Like oh, okay. Nice. We can talk about that. Anything else? I'm I'm literally out of. Are we toasting of, our wives? We're going to do a podcast on that. Like, is my wife a classic? Is your wife? a We classic? should do a live podcast Sunday night from your house. Oh, that'd be interesting. with all of us. We're all going to get super drunk. That would be fun. I could set a mic up on the table. We could do something like that. It's a go. Uh, David MacArthur has been my guest. Uh, This is a crossover podcast. I do the Square Peg podcast. Dave does the... Toasting the Classics podcast. And where can people hear the Toasting the Podcast? Toasting the Classics is available anywhere you get your podcast. Apple, Spotify. You can go over to your Alexa and you can say, Alexa, play Toasting the Classics podcast and it will come up with... Do you ever have problems with Spotify? Do I have problems? How so? Uploading or like... 
There's a lag, but that's okay. You know, I, I actually actually upload on Podbean is where I do my podcasts, and Podbean is another service you can use to get podcasts. Um, and once I load it on Podbean, it's like half an hour before it's up on Apple and Spotify, but I haven't had any problems otherwise. And and, and I'm going to say that you do a lot more work on your podcast than I do because I'm literally just the talent. I come here it's, and put my shitty voice on record, yeah, yeah. and my producer, Lindsay, does talent literally everything else. is not a else. word I would use to describe my contribution to the podcast, but well, yeah, I definitely put in the sweat and the tears. So There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed uh, Dave and me rambling and drinking uh, and talking about Edgar Allan Poe. Um, this is actually the season finale for season four. Oh, and wow. I talked about- Wow, I feel you know, like I, I have a place of importance. That's nice. Well, I mentioned last and week- And you closed last season with my wife. With Karina That's talking awesome. about fat surgery. I'm, I'm sorry, bariatric surgery. We don't say the F word in our household. <laughs> so. You can tell I've been drinking. <laughs> I said fat surgery. Yes, we did. No, I thought about that last week when I was interviewing um, a really good episode with uh, another a professional colleague of mine, actually. Um, I was announcing this episode, and I said, you know what, come to think of it, the end of season three, the seri- season finale for season three was Karina talking about her job as a bariatric surgeon, right. being an immigrant from Ukraine, of all places. Yep. Uh, and, and you know what? I've actually done, I did my season one finale and my season two premiere were a husband and wife couple as well. Ah. So a little bit of a theme a going symmetry, on here. A little bit of symmetry there. I like that. There we go. Ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ. Ladies I, and genuine. Did, the, ladies and genuine. I shit you not. I'm like two Are you beers. saying ladies aren't genuine, Larry? Is that Ladies and genuine gentlemen. There you go. Um, thank you very much for listening to the Square Peg Podcast, uh, the crossover episode with the Toasting the Classics Podcast. I'm Send Andrew. Larry some email and request that we do more of these because this was pretty fun. I enjoyed hey, it. And if you don't know, we are Square Peg Podcast LC at gmail.com just in case you wanted to email us. Of course, you know we're on Facebook and Instagram as well. We will see you guys next season. All right. Peace out. Later. That's it for episode 52 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, get craft beer, preferably from Idaho, for our discussion of the 1998 film Smoke Signals. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know who you think Lenore was. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.